If I was feeling depressed or frustrated about my life, all I had to do was tap the player one button and my worries would instantly slip away as my mind focused itself on the relentless pixelated onslaught on the screen in front of me. There, inside the game's two-dimensional universe, life was simple. It's just you against the machine. Move with your left hand, shoot with your right, and try to stay alive as long as possible. Ernest Klein, Ready Player One. I'm Blakely Thomas Aguilar, and this is Pop Culture Tech, an original podcast brought to you by VMware. The truth is, nearly all of us are gamers. You might play solitaire on your phone, or you might go out for a run, strap on your smartwatch, and try to beat your best time. Or, on the extremely cool end of the spectrum, you might join your friends in a Fortnite battle royale in front of millions of online subscribers. Even crazier, you likely play video games at work or school and don't even realize that's what you're doing. So, how did this happen? How did we go from bouncing a ball slowly from one side of the screen to the other, to today, where video games infiltrate every industry, every country, and nearly every activity on the planet? In the simplest terms, our human minds love to play games. We love to be challenged and come out on top. We have an intrinsic desire to learn and engage, and we love to be entertained. As digital technology infiltrates so many aspects of our lives today, it's no surprise that tech has transformed our love of games, specifically video games, into pop culture. To kick off our conversation, I spoke with Lou Fasulo, co-founder and CEO of gaming startup Starform. I was actually born in Brooklyn. Uh, My friends tease me that I'm a Brooklyn boy, but In reality, my parents moved upstate New York and actually went to school in Potsdam, went to Clarkson University and studied engineering. And those days at school were really formative for me because during exhaustive hours in the the computer labs and things like that, we tended to take breaks playing games. And that's when I really, you know, kind of got my first experience playing RTS games and kind of realizing how immersive this stuff was because... You know, you take a break and next thing you know, four hours later, it's early in the morning and uh, you lost time. And um, that was, you know, nothing had really done that for me before. So in school, I studied a kind of a mix of mechanical engineering and math and a little bit of software engineering. Um, But I didn't really make a transition into gaming until mobile was a thing. Um, I heard about an opportunity to work at Singular, helping them build their mobile business. And that's when I made the transition, uh, really being into the game business from more of an engineering and product management role. Gaming at that time was actually more of an embarrassing thing than anything else. When I first started getting a handle on what was going on, it was flip phones and little tiny screens playing Snake. (laughs) 
and you know different match three games and things like that. Um, but I could see where the future was going to go. You know, even with those phones that couldn't do a lot, it was pretty obvious that the final frontier for gaming was going to be these mobile devices. They would quickly improve. The screens would improve. The network quality would improve. And then you would have this immersive experience that we're now starting to see with the latest phones and tablets. It's been an interesting kind of... Uh, path to follow, starting on the storefront side and seeing kind of what drives consumer behavior and, you know, going from a, a smaller market that was more willing to experiment to now one that has a lot of very high demands. Lou's had a prolific career, working at and launching gaming startups that become the next big mobile gaming companies like Z2 and King. When I think about my favorite games and the ones that people around the world go nuts for, I ask Lou, what happens after a game goes viral? Candy Crush is a great, a great example yeah, of, you know, ultimately a game that launched years ago <clears throat> that is still enjoyed by players. It's almost like Candy Crush doesn't care what the hardware can do, right? And new devices come out, Candy Crush is still Candy Crush, and that's great. Specifically, you know, for these companies that have made what I would consider like an international phenomenon, where success breeds success, and you get this virtuous cycle of everyone's playing it, so I should play it too, or I want to play the game that my friends are playing, or whatever it might be. These games tend to turn the companies that create them into caretakers of a great IP, right? And, you know, the cultures in those companies tend to become very focused on maintaining and building the great brand that they have created. And it's so hard to create something that a lot of people fall in love with that is very reasonable to, um, to be focused on kind of creating the most out of the winner, the winning game that you have. And so it's definitely my view that as these companies do find cultural phenomena, the way they think about the market, the way they see the market, the way they think about consumers tends to put them more in this mindset of caretakers and as opposed to risk takers. And so generally what I've seen is that the companies with the biggest IP with the broadest, you know, large appeal, um, they tend not to be as good at innovating. And, you know, innovating takes, uh, it requires taking risk. It requires being patient about trying things. I think uh, Jeff Bezos made a great quote when he said, um, innovation and failure are inseparable twins. And when you're in a mindset of managing earnings, you want to generally avoid failure. It's not a fun thing to talk about on a, you know, quarterly earnings call. Let's talk about the technology that makes gaming possible. Gaming has been at the forefront of technology innovation since the very first home console came out, the Atari Pong. The evolution of these platforms is faster than almost any other technology category. Remember how quickly we went from blowing into our Nintendo games to downloading games on Wii? 
or from inserting SIM CDs into our computers to MMORPGs completely streaming online? And what about when mobile phones came out? And in just a few short years, we went from Snake to Pokemon Go. All these super cool experiences and lightning fast innovation cycles are because the gaming industry continually pushes the bleeding edge of tech innovation. Yeah, so mobile gaming really got its start on the very early devices like the flip phones and the Nokias of the world. Um, and I got my start in the industry managing the, the game store at Singular Wireless. And back then, you know, there was really no merchandising. You had a little text description of what the game was and a price. And, you know, not too long after that, the iPhone came out and it became a completely different world. And it went from embarrassing to admit that you were in mobile gaming to kind of a exciting place to be. It was the new frontier. And that play anyone, anytime, anywhere opportunity that mobile presented was alluring to developers and consumers alike. But, you know, devices since that first iPhone have definitely improved a lot in all dimensions. Um, The quality of the screens, the cameras, the connectivity, um, the processors. But when you step back and you kind of look at the experiences that were really successful in the early days, there's not a lot that has really changed. Um, I think the thing that's been most meaningful is that these games can go from a connected, they, they can be a single player game that now can be connected all the time to backend services. So, you know, a single, even a single player game can have new content delivered whenever the developer has it ready. And really, they're taking advantage of this always, always on internet connection. And that really led to what we consider now modern live operations for games. And those are, you know, limited time events and competitions and Halloween content like we're coming up on. And all of that makes the gaming ecosystem just feel more alive. And certainly... Uh, a little bit of a 24-7 operation for the developers behind the games. So I think that's a big, big change that you just haven't seen on any platform before mobile. The gameplay, what's fun to consumers, was capable, you know, the devices were capable of doing those things years ago. And certainly the graphics have improved and now you have really high quality rendering but fun, you know, what's fundamentally fun and what the game, the devices were capable of, those things haven't changed all that much. You're actually seeing, I think, with Apple Arcade, a lot of really, really fun games that are 2D art, super fun, replayable. It was possible to build and launch a number of those games. In fact, some of them, I think, are uh, some of those older games are coming back in the new arcade services. Um, and I'm kind of excited to see them. You know, some of the best designed original touchscreen games um, are still fun to play today. When I talk about live services and sort of this idea of modern live ops, those services are largely made possible by by the cloud, essentially, right? Um, it's, it's the storage and the delivery of a, a content and game experiences via the cloud, whatever your favorite cloud service might be, doesn't really matter. When 
the gameplay and the content are all really delivered via the internet, you can, you know, keep things much more fresh and dynamic. And it's an extension of the infrastructure that ultimately provides the game experience. So it is the case that it's not just the processor that's on your phone and the memory locally that's on your phone, but it is um, what you can connect to in the cloud as well. So now you're really getting into all those elements of managing a, a game as a service. And I didn't hit on that too much, but when we're building games, we're thinking about all of the data and the features of the game. We want them to be updatable over the air as the needs of the game and the desires of the community change over time. And that can be that they just want new content or we want to create new events for them to play or there are holidays or other relevant, you know, real life events that we feel would be fun to bring into the game world. And all of that means making as much of the game uh, data driven as possible. So, you know, whether it's new packages of content, whether it's subscription offerings or, you know, battle pass type experience like Fortnite, you know, game developers want to be able to update all of that over the air and really be in a place to customize the game as much as possible for what the players are looking for. Um, and it, a big part of running a live service is really being in touch with the players and understanding how they're experiencing the game, what the pain points are, what the things are that they love, and then continually building that relationship with players so they feel like they're heard. They see changes in the game that uh, directly reflect their feedback and their experience. And you get them in this cycle of giving feedback and then seeing that those changes in the game, whether it's new content or bug fixes or whatever, part of that is just building a relationship between the company and the players and building trust that you hear them, you understand what they want and that you're ultimately catering to them. As we looked at the tech trends making headlines today, like artificial intelligence, augmented reality, cloud, and edge computing, the gaming industry is leveraging those transformative innovations to once again reinvent the way we play and engage. I asked Lou to gaze into the future and tell us what's coming next. Today, when we buy any kind of electronics, we, especially if there's a screen attached, essentially, we expect to be able to stream video. You know, if we can't experience Netflix on our TV or our phone, that would be complete. That would be, you know, really surprising. Um, it's essentially like one of the bullet point list items and gaming is going to be exactly the same thing, right? Like, I don't want to have an Xbox sitting next to my TV in my living room. What I really want is just to log into my Xbox right into my TV, just like I'm doing with Netflix. And so this is part of the larger battle for the living room, right? And these corporate battles for control of the living room typically start with, let's bring all of our technology to bear. and they. Um, tend to be about uh, partnerships and less about consumers. But eventually, things get introduced to the market that consumers really love. Really making things more seamless, easier to do, that's going to build the industry. That's going to you know, bring more gamers into the fold. And certainly, bringing that Xbox or PlayStation experience to what is now your flat screen in your home 
uh, I think that's a big part of making games even more ubiquitous. And eventually that obviously is going to become gaming on whatever platform. You know, I think this is a, a big indicator of what's to come is that you can play Fortnite on your console and your PC and your mobile device. And for the most part, that's a pretty good experience cross-platform. If you like the game, you can you can truly engage with it cross-platform. That needs to be seamless, and it really needs to be everywhere. And I don't want to think about, am I on the PlayStation Network or the Xbox Network? I really don't care about that stuff as a consumer. And when those companies try to separate the social networks, more than anything, it just infuriates customers. Like If I can't play with you because you're on a different console, the whole experience is less valuable to me. There's a lot of room for innovation. I think you're going to start to see some of it with the streaming services that are trying to be device agnostic. And I'm excited about where those things will go because all of this investment in gaming is going to push the boundaries and create new experiences. Probably not exactly what where you know they intend to go, but ultimately the experiences will improve and new things will come out of them that are really compelling for consumers and gamers. Speaking of disruptive technology, one of my favorite pop culture moments of the last decade was a game that stole headlines because of its lovable characters, viral adoption, and wicked cool augmented reality. And that's Pokemon Go. Here's John Hankey, founder and CEO of Niantic, the company that brought us Pokemon Go and my personal favorite, Wizards Unite. Um, I started Niantic to um, basically try to create something that um, I could do together with my family. Uh, I'm a father of three, and like many parents, you know, struggle at times with pulling my kids away from screens. So I was trying to combine maps and games into something that would get us outside together. The idea for Pokemon Go, the first, um, the first time that that idea came together was, uh, it was actually an April Fool's joke that we did at Google, where um, we put um, an engineer, Tatsu, put Pokemon on top of Google Maps. And we saw that and we thought, there's a game in there. It started very experimentally. So this was a little group inside of Google. Originally it was just me, then a couple of other people. So we created an app called Field Trip first. So Field Trip is really just about information discovery. So we collected a bunch of data sources that we thought were like the world's most interesting places. So all the little quirks and oddities, um, a sculpture in the park, historical sites. Um, so that was step one. And then from that, we decided to build that into more of a game. So after that, we built an app called Ingress. So we took all those locations and turned it into a massively multiplayer game with this sci-fi story overlay. Um, and that really opened up um, our minds into the power of this kind of product. So that was where we saw people socially really coming together to play the game, forming groups around the world, um, and the exercising. Like people were using the app as a sort of motivation to exercise. Um, so we sort of absorbed all of those learnings and then built Pokemon Go. So we tried to bring you know, the best of that into Pokemon Go or, while also kind of being true to that franchises 20-year history and all that's special and great about Pokemon. We learned a lot from Pokemon Go. Um, I think the thing about it that um, was, is most important is the fact that it's really accessible. 
Uh, it's not an intimidating game. Uh, you can come in and just start enjoying it within like 30 seconds. Uh, and um, it's also, you know, very broadly appealing, I think, because you're not going to come in and like immediately get, you know, defeated by somebody else. You can just start playing. So we wanted to retain that accessibility and kind of friendliness of the game so that it could appeal to a lot of people and you could have this really neat social interaction that we've, that we've seen with Pokemon. Pokemon Go's viral success is more than just the number of downloads or the cool AR experience. What turned it into pop culture icon status was the community that developed around the game. You know, I think one of the great things about the game is that it's bringing people together from different walks of life. So if you come to one of our community days or one of the GoFest events, um, you'll see old, young parents, kids, single people, people with different lifestyles. Uh, it is super eclectic, and yet these people are, they have this shared interest in the game and this common bond. So it's really neat to see people from all walks of life, you know, kind of coming together around, around the game. I think the biggest benefit of the game is the fact that it's pulling people off their couches and getting them out into the parks where people can just kind of run into one another. Um, I think it's awesome that the game gives people a way for people that live in the same city to meet um, and to get to know one another. Um, that seems super valuable to me to just start rebuilding some of the community that you know maybe we've lost in some ways. We hoped that people would play with their friends. We really didn't expect the degree to which people would make new friends through the game, but um, these user groups have popped up in cities around the world, so they organize raids, they organize people coming out together for community days. So we have seen a lot of people just becoming friends, but also a number of proposals and marriages. So uh, I think it's great that it's an icebreaker for people to meet. The Niantic team is a great example of game developers taking emerging technologies and turning them into technological leaps. They took GPS and fledgling augmented reality tech, which at that time was being explored in the conceptual futuristic arena, and turned it into something accessible and more importantly, fun. So I asked John, what's next for immersive gaming? I think the next frontier for immersive gaming is less immersion. Uh, we're really about um, trying to get people out into the world and playing games, but also like noticing what's around them and maybe like talking to the people that they're playing with. So um, yeah, I think we're kind of the answer to like overly immersive experiences. The truth is, we're all gamers. And we do it for a diverse set of reasons, individual to our preferences and most importantly, what makes us happy? The coolest thing of all is video gaming's ability to bring together communities. Whether you're playing Mario Kart with your family on a Friday night, words with friends before a dentist appointment, or meeting new friends when you enter the Shadowlands. Let's go back to Lou, who's had a lifetime of experience creating awesome games that bring us together. One of the things that we at Starform felt really strongly about is that games are a medium where people connect. And, you know, the best example of that is when people have a shared memory. <clears throat> and you talk about, remember that time. So, you know, whether it's World of Warcraft or Fortnite and your first Battle Royale win on a team or something like that, 
you come away with these memories that you share with people. And it's no different from going to a concert. Those things stick with you. You talk about them. It's actually also the reason you wind up going back. Um, how many times in life have we done something where we're like, that's a lot of fun. And your immediate reaction is, I want to recapture that. And so gaming um, allows people to have those experiences together, no matter where they are living. Um, they can be living 3,000 miles apart and have a story together. And that's really compelling. In fact, what we see in our experience is that guilds, groups of players that play these games together, tend to uh, last longer than the games that they play. And so you see these guilds that have connected 30, 40, maybe even a couple hundred people. They might start playing WoW, they might start, you know, and then they move on to other things over time. The social bonds transcend the games and the entertainment and the experiences even more. And so when we think about how do you make something compelling, it really has to have that social element that allows people to walk away with a shared experience. And it, you know, connects the world in a way that makes it feel a little smaller, a little more intimate, a little more shared experience. And these are all good things for humans in general. Above all, video games are meant to be just one thing, fun, fun for all. Former Nintendo CEO Satoru Iwata. Thank you to Lou Fasulo of Starform and John Henke of Niantic for joining one of my personal favorite episodes to date. And I'm Blakely Thomas Aguilar. This is Pop Culture Tech. Our podcast is brought to you by VMware, the software that connects, automates, and secures the world's digital infrastructure. Learn more at VMware.com. Have questions about today's episode or want to talk about your favorite game? Follow me at BlakelyAggs on Twitter and use hashtag PopCultureTech. Until next time, pop culture fans. <laughs>